Beth Bartel. And I'm Ted Burnham. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, October 1st, 2013. We focus today on the recently recently released findings of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. That rumbling sound that you're hearing is the launch of a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket from Vandenberg Air Force Base in California on Sunday, bound for low Earth orbit and carrying a satellite built right here in Boulder. The Drag and Atmospheric Neutral Density Explorer, that's DANDY for short, is the latest project from the University of Colorado's Space Grant Consortium. More than 100 students at CU have worked on Dandy since the project began in 2007. It looks like a high-tech beach ball, and its one-and-a-half-year mission will study how air resistance from the highest levels of the atmosphere affects satellites, especially during solar storms, when clouds of ionized particles from the sun slam into the upper atmosphere. Now, you might have thought all satellites were in space, where there's no atmosphere at all. But no. Dandy joins thousands of satellites in a region called the thermosphere, between 50 and a few hundred miles above Earth. The air up there is very thin, but it's enough to slowly degrade a satellite's orbit. Now, normally that's a bad thing, but for Dandy, it's the whole point. Dandy will measure the density and composition of those high-altitude winds that will eventually be its doom, slowing it until it plummets back to Earth. Hopefully, the data will help other satellites avoid a similar fate. Jeez, Beth, who knew being a satellite was such a drag? Indeed, Ted, I am glad that I am not a satellite. Don't expect to procrastinate today with any good tidbits from NASA's Facebook feed. NASA, like many other governmental science organizations, including Boulder's offices of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, and NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, have closed their doors in the government shutdown. Even if they wanted to keep posting to Facebook, they wouldn't be allowed to. Other agencies affected include the U.S. Geological Survey and the National Science Foundation. Altogether, about 700,000 federal employees, scientists and otherwise, will be told to stay home from work until the shutdown is over. And yes, so far today, NASA's Facebook feed is silent. Congratulations to the University of Colorado's Anna Marie Ray, one of last week's 24 winners of a 2013 MacArthur Fellowship. Though through the fellowship, often referred to as a genius grant, Ray will receive $625,000 with no strings attached, distributed over the next five years. Ray is an assistant research professor in the CU Boulder Department of Physics and a fellow of the Joint Institute of Laboratory Astrophysics, or GILA, a joint institute of the University of Colorado and NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Ray has been working on ultra-cold systems and optical lattices, Ray is the eighth CU Boulder faculty member to receive a MacArthur Award. You're turned tuned into How on Earth. I am Beth Bartel. This is your KG News Science Show. On Friday, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, better known as the IPCC, released the first bits of its fifth assessment report, a volume with a plain name that may have a large influence on global policy. The first part of the report, part one of three, is the sciency part, documenting the current state of knowledge of climate change and its effects. The report sticks to the physical science of climate change. 
by how much the climate is changing, what's causing it, and what the world might look like by the end of the century. The next two volumes of the report will address the societal impacts of climate change and, lastly, mitigation strategies. Joining us this morning to talk about this first release is Tad Pfeffer, a professor at CU jointly appointed between the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research, or INSTAR, and the Department of Civil, Environmental, and Architectural Engineering. Tad is one of the lead authors on Chapter 13 of the IPCC report, the chapter on sea level rise. He joins us remotely this morning from New Hampshire. Tad, welcome to the show. Good morning, Beth. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. Um, I'd like to start broad uh, talking about this report and talk about the implications of the, re- the, the report. Why, what does the report try to achieve and what does it matter? Does it matter and why, why are we talking about it on the radio this morning? Yeah, it's it's achieved, um, I, I think, two really uh, worthwhile and remarkable things. One of them is to really solidify what we've done, kind of understanding with, you know, sort of stepwise clarity over the years about what's happening with the climate and sea level rise, the area that I work in, and also better projections of what we expect to be have, or what we expect to have happen in the future. Um, the you know, our knowledge of warming and of the causes of warming has really evolved over the years. It's really interesting. So I was teaching at CU back in the early 90s, and at that time, so this is right around the release of the first IPCC report, what I was telling my classes was, um, you know, it's, it's, we're almost positive that we can see a coherent warming signal in atmospheric temperatures. We're not totally 100% sure, but, you know, it's a little bit more data, we'll probably have it. And then a couple of years later, I would say, okay, well, now we know it's warming, but we don't really know why. And then it was, now we know it's warming, and we're pretty sure that it's human-caused, but it was it was like the warming itself several years before. There wasn't quite enough data to really know if it was us. And now we really know it's us. That's one of the top conclusions of, of the working group one report. And then also projecting forward into the future, and again, sea level is the part that I really know about. Um, We have better projections of where we think sea level is going to be by 2100, and that is at the the upper level of what we project, just shy of a meter or about three feet. Well, let's get back to that in a second. Um, Could you tell us more about your role in writing this report. Your role was as a lead author, one of 14 lead authors on this chapter. Um, what did it mean to be a lead author in this international collaboration? Well, um, yeah, as you, as you said, I'm, I'm a lead author, one of a group. Each of the 14 chapters in the Working Group 1 report has a group of lead authors, not all the same number, but it's on the order of a dozen, and then two coordinating lead authors, which are sort of the you know, orchestral conductors that tries to keep everybody pointing in the same direction. And we come into that uh, group with various different kinds of relevant expertise. And since the IPCC isn't a body that does new science, it's not, that's not our job. Our job is to report on, synthesize, and make assessments of the existing science that's out there. The lead authors need to have a broad awareness of what's going on in the scientific community around them. And so for me, my job, if I, if I had a specific task, was to represent the knowledge of what the 
the smaller glaciers and ice caps around the world are doing. So this is all the ice in the world, with the exception of the two big ice sheets on Greenland and Antarctica. And those have been the, uh, the primary contributors of ice adding to sea level to the observational record up to now and will continue to be so through most of the 21st century. But the ice sheets are catching up rapidly. But that was really, that was my first job, was to be the person who um, knew what was going on with the glaciers and ice caps and to contribute that knowledge to the group. Could you speak more to that? So your your focus is on glaciers mainly in the Arctic, um, specifically mm-hmm. in Alaska, correct? Your, your focus mainly in Alaska. And often... That's most of their work, yeah. Well, and often when we when we think of big contributors to sea level rise in terms of ice, we think of the Greenland ice sheet, we think of the Antarctic ice sheet. Um, could you tell us more about what role these smaller glaciers that you study do play? Uh, you said they're mm-hmm. major contributors. So could you tell us, um, yeah, could you tell us yeah. how that works? Yeah, the, um, the, the small glaciers of the world are, we, we don't even really know how many there are. Um, in part because you have to decide how small a glacier are you going to get to before you stop counting. But it's on the order of maybe 200,000, something like that. And they're very poorly observed, simply because there are so many of them. And they are a, a very large contributor of water to sea level rise right now, but at the same time, they're a very small reservoir. In other words, their, their total potential for sea level rise is actually extremely low. If you were to look at the relative sizes of the Antarctic ice sheet, the Greenland ice sheet, and everything else, the Antarctic ice sheet has something approaching, uh, just using round numbers, 17 meters of sea level, more than 210 um, feet of sea level rise. If all the ice in Antarctica was put into the ocean, Greenland would have about 7 meters if it was put into the ocean. And everything else in the world, all of these glaciers that I work on, would only put in about half a meter. So it's a tiny, tiny reservoir. But as I, I said before, um, talking to some NASA people, the glaciers are like a, a, a little bucket with a huge hole in the bottom. Because even though they're such a small reservoir, they're losing at a tremendous rate because there are so many of them. They're so low in elevation compared to the ice sheets. And they're in places that are affected um, first by climate change. So the actual contribution to sea level from the little glaciers has been greater than the combined contribution of the two ice sheets uh, throughout the observational record up to now. And now the glaciers are still a little bit more than the two ice sheets together. But the ice sheets have been changing very rapidly. They're accelerating. The glaciers are uh, they're very noisy. They speed up for five years. They slow down. That is, their, their rate of contribution speeds up and slows down. But it's still a very important number to keep track of if you want to know what the total sea level rise is actually going to be, you can't just focus on the, the biggest contribution or the contribution that has the potential to be biggest in the future or the contribution that looks most interesting from a scientific perspective. If you want to produce a useful projection, you have to look at everything. And that includes the you know, 200,000 odd glaciers, even though it's a difficult task. And when we're looking at uh, contributors to sea level rise, uh, we're looking at the contribution of these these smaller glaciers, the contribution of these ice sheets, but we're also looking at expansion due to uh, ocean expansion due to warming. Could you could you explain yes. a little bit how that works, and and what is the yeah. contribution? How big of a contribution does ex- ocean expansion have? 
Yeah, and that's actually the um, that's that's the largest single contributor is thermal expansion. So this is water um, expanding as it gets warmer. If you take a if you take a kettle and fill it right up to the brim and put it on the stove, turn the burner on long before the kettle approaches boiling, the water will start to spill out the top, and that's because the density of the water actually drops. So it, the same mass takes up a larger volume as it warms up. And that's happening in the ocean. It happens mostly in the top layers of the ocean because that's where most of the heat from the warming atmosphere is going. So when uh, modelers and oceanographers measuring thermal expansion look at it, they divide the ocean into the top 700 meters, which would be treated as a, a top layer, and then everything else below that. And most of the thermal expansion is taking place in this, in this top layer. And, of course, it's not uniform globally because the ocean is warming at different rates. And that's, a, that's an important point to make about any of these global numbers that we talk about. Working Group 1, mostly, not entirely, but mostly talks about global averages. And all of these things have significant variations from one place to another, and that especially applies to sea level. The global rate of sea level rise has to be interpreted regionally from one place to another. If you want to find out you know, what's going to happen to you if you live in San Francisco or London or Bangladesh, you can't just look at the global average number. There's a whole lot more going on local. Thermal expansion is, is one of those. This, yeah, this is something that, that piqued my interest. So in my naive view of the world, I think of the ocean as, you know, all or the oceans as all one connected basin, but that's not, that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, if you if you look at a map of the topography of the ocean surface, which we can do these days with satellites that can measure the elevation of the ocean surface at very high resolution, it's it's very lumpy. Uh, it's not a nice smooth dome at all, and that lumpiness. Th- th- this, these are these are vertical displacements on the order of a couple of meters, you know, six feet one way or the other over horizontal distances of uh, tens of kilometers. So it's not, you know, when you're, when you're going around in the ocean, you don't see this. But if you look at a satellite image, it's very, very pronounced. And it occurs because the water is being pushed around by ocean currents, by winds, and also because mass on land is attracting water toward itself. So if you have a big mass sitting on land, adjacent to the ocean, the ocean is going to feel the tug of this extra mass off to one side, and it's going to pull the water toward it a little bit. And in calculating what sea level is going to do in the future, we have to take that into account because there's this very odd other effect of a shrinking ice sheet or a large glacier system, where as that ice sheet shrinks in size, its gravitational attraction shrinks as well. So a big green ice sheet would pull a lot of water up around itself, and as the ice sheet shrinks, It does two things. It adds water to the ocean, which raises sea level, but also its gravitational attraction shrinks. And so in the vicinity of the ice sheet, sea level actually falls for that reason. And you have to to look at the sum of those two. And so as uh, the Greenland ice sheet diminishes in size or glaciers in Alaska diminish in size, sea level actually falls immediately adjacent to them, which is sort of counterintuitive. 
It is sort of counterintuitive. You're listening to KGNU. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Beth Bartell, and we're talking with Tad Pfeffer, a glaciologist at CU and a lead author on the C-level chapter of the recently released IPCC report on the current state of science addressing climate change. Um, Tad, let's talk some numbers. You touched on it um, at the beginning of the interview. Could you tell us a bit about... Um, the history of sea level change and what we're looking at moving forward. You uh, you threw out the word accelerating in there. Yeah, sure. During the during the twentieth century, so nineteen hundred up to the present, more or less, and then we've got really uh, quite good measurements of global sea level rise. The rate of sea level rise was about a millimeter and a half per year. So that's from like nineteen oh one to nineteen ninety. Um, but if you look at it much more recently, like 1993 to 2010, that rate is almost triple. It's gone up to 3.2 millimeters per year. And it's not a smooth curve. Uh, it, it's, it's very choppy and jumpy, and you have to average over pretty long time, time spans, more than a decade, to see uh, those average rates. So you can find areas where sea level actually drops for a few years and starts going up again. That happened uh, as five or six years ago or so. There was a, a brief uh, decline in the rate of sea level rise. And some skeptics were latching on to that. I looked and I see that it stopped rising. It's all over now. But you can find little patches like that in virtually any of these records. Where if you look at a small enough time scale, you can find the trend going in the opposite direction for the longer-term trend. But, of course, it's the long-term trends that we all have to think about. So that was during the 20th century up to now, an increase from about one and a half millimeters per year over the entirety of the 20th century up to a little more than two millimeters per year over the last two decades or so. Um, incidentally, those numbers come from uh, tide gauge measurements uh, early, earlier in that period of time, before we had satellites. So you were measuring the height of the ocean relative to a fixed point on land. But, of course, fixed points on land aren't really fixed because the land can go up and down for a whole variety of reasons. And there's a whole branch of science and geodesy in working out what those land motions are because your reference point isn't fixed either. So using tide gauges is actually pretty complicated. And for many years, particularly in earlier times, there weren't very many of them. So it's hard to get a good global average. Once satellites came in, it was um, possible to get a very comprehensive picture of sea level rise through satellite altimetry. So the satellite is simply measuring the elevation of the sea surface. And this has all kinds of advantages, including the fact that you get coverage everywhere, not just on the coastline where you've installed a tide gauge. And also you get you can do um, very dense spatial coverage across the oceans. That's where you start to see the sea level topography. And also it can be done over and over and over again. So you get very high time resolution. So that's what the present looks like. And moving so, forward. And, and moving forward into the future. This is, this is an interesting story because um, you know, we, could, we could talk for an hour about this by itself. Absolutely. Because we've been, we've been doing we've been doing these suitable projections since the early 1970s, essentially since we had climate models that told us enough about what future atmospheric temperatures might do that we could start thinking about what the ocean might do as a consequence. But for the future, right now, the, the official IPCC projections range from about uh, 26 centimeters up to just shy of a meter. 
98. Why is that range that, so big? Okay, well, there's, there are two reasons for it. One of them is that we use a variety of different future forcing scenarios. In other words, what might climate do? You know, that's, that's what is ultimately driving sea level. And if there's uncertainty in what the atmosphere is going to do, that carries right over into uncertainty in what sea level is going to do. So we actually have um, five different future pathways for global temperature, and each one of those produces a slightly different range of sea level rise. But then within each one of those scenarios, there's a lot of uncertainty, and that's because we don't understand how the entire system works. Um, but the most um, volatile bit of the business of projecting sea level rise really lies in rapid ice dynamics, uh, which is a fancy word that essentially boils down to calving of icebergs. Okay. Glaciers and ice sheets that end in the ocean um, can get rid of ice much faster, much more efficiently by calving icebergs. And that's controlled primarily by how rapidly water, uh, sorry, how rapidly ice is moved down to the sea, to the perimeter of the ice where it ends in the ocean. And there's a lot of complicated internal physics there, which we've made significant progress in since the last IPCC report. But it's still kind of rudimentary. So there's a lot of uncertainty for that reason as well. So one of the one of the main differences, and we might have to end on this point, but one of the main differences that's been cited in the media um, between the last IPCC report, which was in 2007, so it's been six years, um, and, and this year is a lot of people are talking about a, a difference in projected temperature range by the end of the century. Um, before it was from uh, a, a two to four degree Celsius increase, I believe, and now it's um, one and a half, 1.5 to four. So that lower bound has lowered. The upper bound um, of temperature, potential temperature increase has stayed the same. Um, but yet the the sea level projections have gone up on their their upper bound. Yeah, yeah. And that is because the, um, well, again, the uncertainty is large compared to what, what uncertainty is or, or the, the, the change in the projection from that slightly lower lower bound on future warming. But also it's because this time, compared to AR4, we have the dynamics worked out more reliably. Again, this is the business of icebergs going into the ocean rapidly. And that doesn't depend very directly on temperature. That's a process which is triggered by temperature. So warming can push glaciers and ice sheets into the state where they're dumping icebergs like crazy into the ocean. But that that rate of loss to iceberg calving doesn't vary up and down with the temperature. So all of these processes that happen at the other end, the high end of the spectrum, don't really care too much about the details of what the temperature is doing as long as it's pushing the ice system above this certain threshold. Another thing that's happening is we're getting a better oh. a better idea of what the small glaciers I'm, are doing. I'm, Unfortunately, we're going to have to end there because of time. Um, obviously, we could go on on this subject for a very long time. Tad, thank you so much for joining us today from New Hampshire. That was Tad Pfeffer, a CU glaciologist and a lead author on the part of the IPCC AR5 report addressing sea level rise.
That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced by me, also our executive producer for the week. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music today from Brulee. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes and extended interviews. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Beth Bartell.